Welcome back to the analysis.news. I'm Colin Brusantis, and this is part two of my conversation with Paul Jay on the Russia-Ukraine war. Welcome back to our conversation with Paul Jay about the Russia-Ukraine crisis within the context of global capitalism and imperialism. And something I wanted to talk to you about that you were mentioning in part one was Zelensky not necessarily being the angel figure that he has been presented as in a lot of the mainstream media. And I wanted here to try and parse out the difference between being pro-war against Russia and being pro-Ukraine. Because my understanding is that a part of the reason Zelensky was elected in the first place was he had promised a peaceful negotiation with Russia and then was seen thereafter to be capitulating on some of those promises in order to appease some of the more right-wing and even far right-wing forces in Ukraine. Uh, can you comment on where you see Zelensky's position in all of this? What has his behavior been? And what is a pro-Ukrainian citizen position at this moment? Mm. Well, again, let me say uh, I'm no expert on Ukrainian politics. I, you know, I've talked to Ukrainian guests. I've talked to Russian guests. Uh, I've been to Ukraine once, but it was years ago. Um, in fact, uh, one part of my family comes from Ukraine. My great grand, my grandparents emigrated from out a uh, little town outside of Kiev. Uh, but that doesn't mean I know anything uh, particular. But I'll, from what I I'll, again, I, as someone who interviews people, uh, I'll tell you what I my understanding of it. Um, first of all, the fact this this Jewish guy gets elected in Ukraine that has such a history of anti-Semitism uh, says something positive about the Ukrainian people, and, and I don't think that should be diminished. Um, I think, as I understand it, in the uh, uh, last elections, uh, the f Nazis who did run some candidates not a single one actually got elected. Uh, they, my understanding is they do play an outside, outsized role in Ukrainian politics, or at least did, um, uh, in alliance with the far-right sections of the Ukrainian oligarchy, um, and including, you know, TV channel with the, has outright racist, uh, anti-Russian propaganda on it and such. It's my understanding before the Russian Revolution, um, the far right of Ukraine was actually quite pro-Tsar. And uh, the far right liked uh, the uh, Russian Orthodox Church and, and, and felt itself to a large extent connected to uh, Russian nationalism, um, but hated the uh, Bolshevik Revolution. And so the Ukrainian right went from being quite sympathetic to Russia under the Tsar, to then being very anti-anti-Soviet, uh, thus anti-Russian. Um, but at any rate, the the underlying issue again, as I understand it, is that the area of Donbas uh, and and this section of the eastern Ukraine in industrial base uh, was very dependent on cheap energy from Russia. I'm talking now modern times here. Um, so you have a split in the uh, Ukrainian oligarchy. A section of the oligarchy wanted to be closer, and this is more represented in Western Ukraine, wanted to be closer to the EU and 
and uh, wanted to be uh, op open to the uh, Euro West European markets and to sell cheap labor into the EU more easily and so on. Whereas the East needed this cheap Russian energy and you get this division. As, as explained to me by Ukrainians, who, that's an important factor in the split in the Ukrainian oligarchy. Because you've had this split, which is, you know, one section wants to uh, exploit and plunder the Ukrainian people in alliance with the West, and one section wants to plunder and exploit the Ukrainian people and resources in alliance with Russia. But let's never forget, this is all about a corrupt oligarchy that in many ways, like we talked about in the previous section uh, segment, emerges out of the chaos of the 90s and the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Again, an oligarchy, nurtured, supported, given well wishes, money, arms, whatever, by the West, and, and it's United States, but also Western Europe gets very involved. I have to also say, in, in, in the West's support for the former Soviet republics, there's also competition. I, I made a film in Albania in, in 1991, and I interviewed a guy who used to be the secretary, not first secretary, a secretary to the Central Committee. <clears throat> but he used to actually work directly with Ramiz Aliyah, who took over after Enver Hoxha. And as things are starting to come apart in, in Albania, because they lose their economic deals with East Germany, and they used to have barter deals, and then they became cash, and they didn't have any. There's a meeting between Ramiz Aliyah and the U.S. ambassador. I, I think the mayor's probably the ambassador from Rome or an undersecretary. I'm not sure. Because I don't think at that point there was diplomatic relations. At any rate, there's a conversation with the American who, who says, we will help you. We will recognize the results of your elections. Uh, we'll give you some economic support for transitioning to a more reformed, open economy. But on one condition, only us and not the Germans. There was big competition for who was going to carve up the spoils of what was left in the wreckage of the Soviet Union. So none of this is so straightforward. The only thing straightforward is that every capitalist class of every country does everything it can to enrich itself. That's the only thing straightforward here. Then it gets more complicated. So this very corrupt uh, Ukrainian oligarchy, uh, in 2014, the Russian section of the oligarchy had the presidency. The people grew to hate him because he represented, you know, the, this corrupt oligarchy. And people had this dream that getting closer to the EU would bring heaven. It's the same thing people used to believe in the... Uh, you know, when these places were socialist countries, I, I when I made this Albanian film, this would have like 1990 or something, I interviewed a group of high school students, I, about 15, 20. The film's on my website, by the way. It's called Albanian Journey, End of an Era, in the documentary section. Anyway, I asked this group of about 10, 15 students. I said, what's your vision of the West? And one kid says, 
Well, as far as we know it, we know it's not paradise. But we don't know what it lacks from paradise. And this is how, you know, for decades, they believed the West was freedom, liberty, richness. That if, that, in fact, when the Albanians had this first open election, the, the, uh, the guy who was running for uh, president for the Democracy Party, the pro-American uh, guy whose name escapes me right now, he was actually campaigning on television saying, I've just been to Washington and I've been given a blank check. Literally says this. If you vote for me against the communists, um, we will have whatever we want. I can fill in the number on the check. Well, that's people believe that. And, and so it's not, you know, it's, it's easy to understand that in more recent times, a lot of people in the western part of Ukraine, and, and not only west, there certainly were support for joining the EU in the east too. It wasn't like so amongst the population. It wasn't so uh, straightforward. I mean, lots of Russian-speaking people uh, wanted to join the EU. Uh, it's not surprising after decades and decades of dreaming about the West. But not only that, if you were living in Ukraine, would you like to be in the EU imagining, of course, you're going to be a Norway or Germany or something. They don't want to look at Greece, a destroyed Greece, you know, by the European banks. The, or do you want to be in Russia under a Putin autocracy? Well, I can I understand why lots of people want to be in the EU. Whatever it is, and we whether they're right or they're wrong, it's it's their de, it's their decision. Um, but at any rate, Zelensky, as far as I can make out, does represent uh, a somewhat more democratic. Uh, he is elected through a legitimate, as, as any of these elections are legitimate, it's legitimate. I mean, it's certainly no less legitimate than the election that elects Putin. And, you know, and, and, and you know, I don't think, it, you know, are the American elections legitimate? I, I mean, that's ridiculous when you can see the kind of money in play and gerrymandering and so on and so on. But as, as much as any of these kinds of elections are legitimate, the Ukrainian one seemed to be. Um, but it, I should back up one step. So the Russian guy in 2014 uh, is hated. There's a popular uprising against him is the way I understand this proceeds. Uh, there's a right-wing uh, coup within the uprising backed by the U.S. Embassy. Uh, uh, Ukrainians I talk to, progressive left-wing Ukrainians, uh, say the the, that the role of the U.S. Embassy is highly exaggerated uh, by the outside left. I don't know if they're right or wrong, but they say, of course, the Americans uh, gave some confidence to the Ukrainian right that the Americans would recognize them as legitimate. Uh, I don't know that it goes more than that. You know, there's this famous phone call where the American ambassador is saying, you know, it's trying to choose who the next leader would be. It's yeah, Newman, it's, it sounds legitimate, but the Ukrainians tell me this was a popular uprising and it was hijacked by the far right. But whatever it was, it was not the beginning of an American war against Russia. What the hell did that have to do with Russia? 
this is a Ukrainian event. This is a Ukrainian uh, right-wing coup. This is a Ukrainian domestic issue. How is this a war against Russia? Because a pro-Russian Ukrainian leader is chased away, hated and chased away. In my role as, as, as uh, occasional challenger here, uh, two things that would be said is that first off, we have the quote of talking about who the next leader should be. Second off, a lot of pro-Russians, I think 39 of them in total, were burned alive by far-right forces in Odessa at that time, which was yeah. seen as, that, that stirred up a lot of, of uh, defensive sentiment from, from, pro -Russian, from the pro-Russian side. And third off, uh, that that also accelerated the push again for NATO expansion, which we talked about in part one quite extensively, but that that did up the ante in terms of uh, Russia feeling the need for defense. Well, the fact that I, I think it was a union hall where those people were burnt. Yeah, the, 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 yeah it seems the, 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 the Nazi, or Ukrainian Nazis were responsible for that. Um, the uh, it's still a domestic Ukrainian event. I don't it, whether they're Russian or not. I mean, does uh, you know it, you know if if it's true what the Chinese are doing to the Uyghurs, the Saudi Arabia should they you know they don't have the military might, but if they did, or Turkey for example, should Turkey invade China and save the Muslims? They have a right to do that. No, it's a Chinese thing, you know. We're living in a capitalist world and horrible stuff happens, but we have some norms and international law. It came out of the Nuremberg trials. It came out of the construction of the UN. And if we as progressive people don't stand up for these norms, who the hell will? So yes, it was a horrible thing that happened. Uh, I think it was in Odessa. Um, and and, and what, yeah, can you believe Shakisvili the most corrupt leader of Georgia, then gets hired to be governor of Odessa. I mean, you know, he's, he's got to be a CIA asset. But, but, you know, I remember a great thing Lewis Lapham said. Uh, I used to have be executive producer of this debate show on CBC in Canada. And it was in the lead up to the Iraq war. And we had, it was a debate show and Lapham was on and, um, uh, you know, he, his, his magazine was Harper's. And, uh, and then we had a, a, an Iraqi who was in favor of a U.S. invasion. The invasion had not yet taken place. And the Iraqi was going on about all the crimes of Saddam Hussein, of which there were many. I mean, Saddam Hussein is the very definition of a vicious, brutal dictator, okay? at the political level. You can say other things because they actually had a coherent healthcare system, they had a coherent educational system. But if you opened your mouth against Saddam Hussein, you could be tortured. Anyway, so he's, so Lapham says to him, you know what, I know he's a vicious, brutal dictator, but you know what else? That's not my problem. You Iraqis want to get rid of that guy, get rid of him. You want to organize and overthrow him? Do so. But as an American, I'm against aggressive wars. I'm against the Americans trying to be the policemen of the world. And I'm for international law. 
And as long as Iraq is not an imminent threat to the United States, the United States has no right to go in and overthrow Saddam Hussein, and it makes absolutely no difference how terrible he is. And I think that's correct. And the alternative is supposed this bullshit of humanitarian intervention, which is always a cover and excuse for aggression. So to get back to Zelensky, so 2014 and the right-wing coup against this pro-Russian government is not an excuse. Now, between 2014 and 2016, there is a very vicious uh, attack on Donbass. Uh, Donetsk and Lugansk uh, have a kind of almost, if I understand it correctly, I'll keep saying that because uh, I'm going based on what I hear from people I talk to. You have a kind of prog progressive-led independence struggle where the workers of Donetsk and Lugansk rise up against being ruled by this right-wing coup in Kyiv and declare independence. And its early stages has quite a progressive character, if I understand it. And uh, a lot of Russians, including the Russian left, have a lot of sympathy for this declaration of uh, independence against this right-wing government in Kyiv. And the right-wing government in Kyiv uh, promotes uh, a virulent, toxic, anti-Russian Ukrainian nationalism. Uh, they, they, there's even attempts to illegalize Russia as a language, which is insanity given the majority of the Ukrainian army speaks Russian. I mean, the whole thing's so crazy. Um, and between 2014 and 2016, there's a lot of real uh, vicious uh, fighting along, you know, where the Ukrainian government attacks Donetsk, Lugansk, and there's a lot of civilians killed. Um, I, I think between in that period, as many as uh, 3,000 uh, civilians are killed in the Donbass Donbass region. Although more Ukrainian soldiers are killed, interesting enough. I think about 4,000 Ukrainian soldiers are killed. But in the period between, by 2018, and in the period, this is according to the OSCE observers, between 2018 and the end of 2021, there's very few deaths. I think the uh, civilians killed are just over about 310 or something over that whole period of 2018 to 2021. So... Uh, yes, Zelensky, it's something happens. The, the uh, attacks on Donbass do are reduced, at least from the 2014-2016 period. Um, yes, he's elected to try to resolve these uh, issues with Donbass peacefully and try to normalize relations with Russia in a more peaceful way. And yes, he doesn't live up to that. And as I understand it, because of the pressure of the uh, far right uh, in the Ukrainian oligarchy and amongst the far right fascist organizations, he's, he compromises, conciliates, capitulates, and does not you know, stand up to these forces 
the way he promised he would in the elections. Uh, he represents a, a section of the oligarchy. This is not a guy that emerged, you know, from the, he, you know, they, because he was a comedian and all this, he's supposed to like be a people's hero. Uh, he may have emerged, but he emerged to become a member of the oligarchy. Uh, you know, he wound up running a big media company. He was hiding money. I think that came out in the Panama Papers. Um, so yeah, so so Zelensky never fulfilled, but it, but it is interesting that that was the aspiration of the majority of the Ukrainian people, that they voted for a guy who was supposed to diminish the antagonism both with Donbass and with Russia. Still, even as we get into 2022, um, there is no evidence either of, and I'm quoting from Putin and Lavrov here, who claimed there was an imminent genocide that was going to take place against uh, Donbass. I, I, I have not seen a shred of evidence. If there is, I can say I'll change my mind. I don't have a dog in that particular race. But I, I have looked at the OSCE numbers. I've looked at all the reporting. I see no evidence that Ukraine was in, in February was about to invade Donbass. Let's put it in the context. There's 150,000 Russian troops surrounding the Ukrainian-Russian border, and I'm, we're to believe Ukraine's about to invade Donbass and give the Russians every excuse they ever could have wanted to invade? I mean, it, it, it really boggles the imagination. Sure, crazy stuff happens, so maybe, but it, there's, as I said, I'll use this phrase again. I see no evidence of it other than claims by Putin, Lavrov, and others. And, uh, and even Zelensky, a, a few days before, was saying he didn't believe the Russians would invade. Well, if Ukraine was poised to attack Donbass, you would think he would have figured there's going to be a Russian response. Um, so so what's the, sh the short of all this is, yeah, Zelensky never lived up to his promises. On the other hand, again, I'll say no imminent threat to Russia. Well, I'd like to move into a, a little bit of the pragmatics of how we proceed from here, how uh, people who are looking to be pro-Ukrainian in this, Ukrainian citizen, not Ukrainian nationalist, but Ukrainian citizen, how they should proceed and how people should proceed if they find themselves in this situation. Because one of the things you said in the previous interview with me, and it's the first time I had heard someone present a maybe we should roll over uh, position, but you said, if the United States invaded Canada, you would not support uh, fighting and getting lots of people killed in order to, uh, to resist that takeover. You would start voting in the elections, start influencing the political system, and try and get independence through a referendum. Uh, but you wouldn't insist on lots of people being killed, which you saw as a pro-oligarch position. Now, yeah, well, uh, well, let me but, just declare to put another mark on that. If the Canadians elected a progressive government that had a serious climate change strategy, for example, uh, starting to phase out the uh, Athabasca tar sands, and if a Koch brother backed United States and the Koch brothers rely on the heavy crude from the Athabasca to feed their uh, refineries in Texas and in, uh, I'm not sure the other ones in Idaho or somewhere, but 
if we were talking about that situation, that'd be a different situation. Like fighting to defend a progressive Canadian government. With, with, and the only, the only thing I could imagine why the Americans would ever do this is over oil. Like just imagine a, a, a Trump government with Coke, Christian nationalist, far-right money, and Coke apparently himself is a Christian nationalist, uh, as far as I can make out. He's, in general, the, his brother was a non-interventionist, uh, but the, the other Coke died, and this guy is more aligned, aligned with the far right than the other guy was. Um, but if they made a grab for invading the tar sands or, or trying to overthrow the Canadian government, I mean, it's, it's pretty far-fetched, but if, uh, that would be a different thing. Um, I mean, it would kind of partly depend on whether you know, the Canadian government actually brought the Canadian army to bear. Anyway, it's a far-fetched scenario. I, I'm saying it that I'm not a pacifist. There are certainly times I can understand where you have to fight and you have to wage an armed fight. And I think I said in that previous interview, like if I was in France when the Germans invaded, yeah, I probably would have been a partisan, uh, you know, with, you know, blowing crap up, assuming it was effective. Um, but I, 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 if I was a Ukrainian right now, and I say this in a somewhat guarded way because I'm not a Ukrainian, and uh, you know the and the nationalist feeling people have in Ukraine, I, I, I understand. But I wouldn't fight to defend a Ukraine of the oligarchs. I wouldn't fight so that the Donbas region, no, an actual invasion of Kiev and overthrowing the government. I don't know. But, but to defend Donbass or Crimea? Absolutely not. Uh, the people of, there's enough people in Donbass that if they don't want the Russians, then let them get organized to throw the Russians out, let them demand a referendum. It doesn't have to be done through this kind of fighting and de destruction of city after city. Um, it's very possible that a majority of people of Donbass uh, actually don't want to be part of Russia. They want to be independent. Uh, uh, and, and they may, you know, who knows what Ukraine emerges from this? You know, Kargalitsky made an interesting point. Now that the working class is so armed, um, you may have a different Ukrainian government emerge. Uh, you know, are the Ukrainian, I, this will be one of the biggest questions coming out of all this, Will the Ukrainians turn Ukraine back over to the oligarchs when this whole thing is over? Or are they going to demand a Ukraine without oligarchs? You know, this is not a situation. It is so chaotic. I mean, this is partly why you had the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, because the, you know, the army was in you know, tatters, the economy was in tatters. And these, you know, this kind of chaotic situation and an armed working class Will a leadership emerge? I don't know. We'll see. It's, 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 it's within the realm of possibility. And if I was a Ukrainian in that situation, yeah, I'd fight for that. But will I fight so that the Western Ukrainian oligarchs can regain control over the Donbass? No. Why, would I, why should anyone die for that? Uh, do I think Donbass and, and Lugansk and... Donetsk, do they have a right to self-determination? Absolutely. 
Do they have to stay in Ukraine? No. And, and, and you, this is the number two thing Ukraine should have done. And if they should have, one, declared no NATO, this is before the invasion, and two, they should have announced a legitimate, internationally observed referendum in Donbass and asked the people what they want. Now, of course, that, that would, to do that, you'd actually have to have some democratic spirit. And the Western Ukrainian oligarchs don't have any real democratic spirit. So they just wanted to, you know, I th what, the other thing I think I said in the other interview, like this kind of sovereignty. Oh, we have to defend our sovereignty. Why? Well, if you're part of the elites, it's because you own stuff. You ha and you have to defend your private property and your ownership because if you don't defend your sovereignty, you're not going to own that stuff anymore. But if you're a worker, you don't own that stuff to begin with. Now, again, if this was publicly owned and somebody was invading to take our public property away from us, yeah, I'd fight for that. But am I going to fight which section of the oligarchs can control the resources and riches of Donbass? No. Now, I'm saying this. Now, I know the, at least the, the section of the left Ukrainians I've talked to, they're not going to like what I just said. The, the nationalist fervor uh, in Ukraine is very high, and, and people have lost their, their relatives, their sons, their daughters, their fathers, and so on. So many thousands of people have died. They, they say, we're not going to let them to have died for nothing. But what if, the truth is, what if the truth is that they actually died for nothing? What if that's the truth? And I'm not, you know, I wouldn't go all the way that way. Like if I'd been in Ukraine when this whole thing started, I would have said, don't fight the Russians with small arms. Don't, let's, hundreds of thousands of us block the highways and sit in front of those tanks and let the world see what we really want. You know, let's have a general strike. You know, if they ever, any place the Russians take over, everyone goes on strike. There were other ways to fight this and make it clear that the Russians claiming that the Ukrainian people want this was bullshit. People could have gone in the streets with signs that said, no to NATO, no to Russia, Russians get out of our country in their hundreds of thousands. I don't think tens of thousands of people should die for nothing. And the kind of nationalism I'm hearing from the Ukrainian left, and they're going to say, easy for you to say, sitting in comfort in Toronto, and they're right. It is easy for me to say. So take it with a grain of salt, or if you're a Ukrainian nationalist, call me full of shit, it's okay. But so, I think some of, you know, some of us have to say these things. So, yeah, I, 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 I do not believe in workers, ordinary people, fighting for a nationalism that simply serves the interests of the oligarchs. And that's what the big fight was during the First World War. Are you going to fight to defend your own elites? You know, to put it the way, you know, the, the left put it and communists put it at that time. They said, you know, don't fight for your own bourgeoisie. Yeah, well, let's not. Uh, it doesn't mean you don't fight, but you don't do it for that. Well, I think it is, even though you are speaking from an outside perspective, I think it is important to bring these things up because it is possible that we could see those kinds of resistance down the road. 
And that does change the kind of things that outsiders are supporting. Um, so it's worth bringing up and it's worth mentioning. Uh, I do want to bring up a couple of challenges, though, two that came from your own previous interviews, one with Boris Kagolitsky, and he said that he felt that Ukraine was winning the war. Uh, he felt that that Russia was going to buckle and he didn't think it was that necessarily that far off, in which case encouraging people to not resist in that way could be a big mistake. Uh, and the other was from Yulia Yurchenko, who's a Ukrainian activist, and her perspective was, if they feel they are getting away with it, they will come back for more. And the only way that she could see an end to war and continuous plunder would be to push Russia out. That was the way she put it. Um, how do you answer those challenges? Well, if I was a progressive Russian, I might say the same thing Kargalitsky said, because I'm a Russian. How does a Russian tell Ukrainians to compromise, give in to Putin? So uh, maybe, maybe a Russian, a left progressive Russian can't say anything but that. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, but I said to Yulia what I just said to you. I don't think it's worth fighting for. It's not worth dying for. There's other ways to struggle. Um, if, you, if you believe you left-wing Ukrainians, if you believe that the majority of the people of Donbass don't want to be part of Russia, if you believe, as she said she did, that the people of Donbass do have a right to self-determination, then make a deal. Let the Russians, you know, have, quote unquote, you know, so far all they've done is recognize it. I mean, yeah, sure, they probably want to annex it. But if the people of Donbass don't want that, then help them as a Ukrainian progressive left, whatever, help them to get organized against the Russian occupation, if you want to call it that. But you don't need to ally with the Russian oligarchy and army to keep this, and, and, and the U.S., that certainly a section of the U.S. elite want this to go on forever, this war. You don't have to be part of that. You know, why, you know, why don't you help the people and say, we, the Ukrainian left, are in solidarity with the right of self-determination for Donbass? So the way to get there is have a compromise, make a deal to stop the killing, stop the war, and then we will support your struggle to assert either your independence from Russia or your independence from both Ukraine and Russia or whatever the hell you want. In other words, we will support a legitimate referendum, but let the killing and destruction stop. And uh, to me, that's a progressive position for Ukrainians to take. Uh, and I also think it's naive to think Okay, you def let's say, quote unquote, he's Kargalitsky's right. The Ukrainians are going to win this. Two possibilities. Number one, Putin's going to blow up a, a, a small tactical nuclear weapon to make a point. I don't know how legitimate a fear that is. It's certainly being talked about a lot. The more likely scenario is 
assuming the Russians really are losing this, and I have no idea if they are. I mean, to me, I hear as many people say they're losing it as people saying they're winning it. And I have zero knowledge of what the truth of it is. It doesn't, honestly, in some ways, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other, because I still think there needs to be a deal negotiated as quickly as possible. And then the people should continue their struggle from within that deal. Um, but let's assume uh, Russia is about to lose. Well, and they don't blow up a nuclear bomb. Do, does anyone really believe they're not going to come back again? They're going to they're accept this? They're not going to regroup and rearm and claim that this is all a horrible conspiracy of the West and, uh, and we Russians, we pull back just to stop the killing and death uh, and then wait till they're ready to do it again? I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, there is a point where real politic needs to kick in here. And Russia is too uh, significant a, a power, military and economic, in spite of all the sanctions. You know, look at the ruble. It's not doing so bad. You know, as long as this is a fossil fuel world, you're not going to have weaken Russia the way you thought you were. Um, and, and, and so, one, it's ridiculous, I think, to think that they're really going to win. And certainly they're not going to kick the Russians out of Crimea. And I, I'd be, I can't believe they're going to kick them out of Donbass, but let's say I'm wrong and it will still be so what because they'll come back. The only, to me, democratic position to take is stop the killing and insist on legitimate referendum. And if the Russians, and they probably won't accept a legitimate referendum, unless they're absolutely sure they're going to win it, and I don't know that they would after all this, then the people of, of, the, of Lugansk, Donetsk, Donbass, you know, they should fight and organize, you know, fight against the occupation if that's what they want. Same thing for same thing for Crimea. You know, I, I hear sec the Ukrainians saying we're even going to liberate Crimea. Number one, every poll that's been taken in Crimea, in fact, says the majority of people actually do want to be part of Russia. And if they don't, then let them organize. Now they can have a general strike in Crimea, demanding they want to go back to Ukraine. You know, people can fight; they're not infants. I was going to raise the, the answer maybe exactly the same, but I was going to then raise a challenge from the other side, which is that especially the American public, but the Western public more generally, has perhaps been misled as to how easy a militaristic resolution can be found here, that there is um, an opinion or a presentation that the entire world is against Russia on this, when that's not not even close to the case. And there is... Um, a sense that Russia is very weak militaristically, which it may be in some ways. But uh, I saw um, uh, Colonel Doug McGregor say that the West was spinning the fact that Russia wasn't taking more land uh, for a period of time as a remarkable spin, given that they had taken the land that they had wanted to, um, or they had, they had encroached as far as they wanted to. And this was being spun as them being weak when they were in a very good position, he felt. Um, and that Putin has consistently had about 70% support from the Russian people. And I actually saw a poll that said in May, 
Russian support, this is from the Leveda Center, which is a pretty reliable uh, outlet, that it had actually increased to a very high, well over 70% rating among the Russian people. And so he's got a lot of strength behind him. And so we have perhaps been misled to believe that militaristic re uh, resistance can resolve this in a short period of time when we're looking at a forever war. Uh, I don't know. Like I said, uh, there's as many people saying the Russians are winning as losing. Uh, I, 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 if I have to say what the consensus opinion is, is that it's sort of a stalemate. Uh, the one guy I thought was interesting was this, there was this Russian colonel, a, a general colonel, very high level retired military officer that was on Russian, one of the major Russian television shows uh, about a month ago. And he says it's a, the, the invasion was a debacle and that the uh, Russian troops were not trained. Uh, the machinery and the whole invasion plan was, was a chaos and that the uh, numbers of Ukrainian troops uh, of at least 100,000 uh, were, were, were and are getting uh, fairly well trained. And he said that the Russian weapons simply could not stand up uh, to the modern weaponry that was being uh, um, funneled into Ukraine. На любое дело все-таки надо смотреть в целом с общей стратегических позиций и желательно с учетом ближайшей исторической перспективы. Но для начала должен сказать, что ну не надо пить информационные успокоительные, а то иногда распространяется информация о том о каком-то морально-психологическом надломе вооруженных силах Украины что якобы там чуть ли не, чуть ли не близится настроение к какому-то перелому и так далее. Все это, мягко говоря, не соответствует действительно. Конечно, есть отдельные частности, пленные, подразделения некоторые, но это частности. А смотреть, как мы только что говорили, надо всегда на дело в целом. А в целом дело обстоит так, что но в принципе... частности, которые определяют то, что происходит в целом. И если уже несколько частей объявили об отсутствии финансирование, оружие, это тоже имеет значение, тоже нельзя оставлять за скобками. Безусловно, но э, ситуация э, с общестратегических позиций состоит в том, что вооруженные силы Украины могут поставить под ружье 1 миллион человек. И они об этом сами говорят, что для нас никакой сложности в том, что мобилизовать 1 миллион человек нет. Весь вопрос состоит в том, насколько они смогут обеспечить эту армию современным вооружением, военной и специальной техникой. Собственными силами они, конечно, ничего бы не сделали, но учитывая, что вот-вот заработает Линдлис, а сопротивление, сопротивление одного единственного сенатора все-таки будет достаточно быстро преодолено, и э, учитывая то, что в полном объеме заработает европейская помощь, так что вот миллион вооруженных украинских солдат, вот это надо воспринимать как реальность, ближайшего реальность ближайшего времени и это нам и это нам надо учитывать в своих оперативно-стратегических расчетах что ситуация в этом плане для нас будет откровенно ухудшаться теперь что касается разговоров о вступлении э, э, в североатлантический альянс национальная армия это сколько человек украинская да, по-прежнему национальная для кого мобилизует тоже так себе контингент дело в том что Уровень профессионализма любой армии определяется не а, комплектованием ее по контракту, 
а уровнем выучки личного состава. Выучки личного состава и его морального настроя, готовности проливать кровь за свою родину. Вот этим определяется уровень профессионализма. И призывная армия может быть высокопрофессиональной. Но возвращаясь все-таки к НАТО, к Североатлантическому альянсу, что тут следует сказать? Опять-таки, ну самое главное в нашем деле, это всегда оставаться на позициях э, военно-политического релизма. Если ты выходишь за эти рамки, то действительность истории тебя рано или поздно так набьет по носу, что мало не покажется. Что тут все-таки самое главное в этом плане? Не размахивать, опять-таки, смотрим на дело в целом с общестратегических позиций. Не размахивать тут какими-то ракетами, елки, в сторону там Финляндии. Это вообще смотрится достаточно забавно. А все-таки самое главное наше недостаток нашего военно-политического положения в том, ну как-то, что мы в полном геополитическом одиночестве. И практически против нас, ну как бы нам это э, не хотелось признавать, весь мир. И вот из этой ситуации, из этой ситуации надо выходить. В этом состоит задача военно-политической. С кем вы предлагаете подружиться и какой ценой? Почему вы китайцев не считаете представителями цивилизованного мира? Почему представители Индии вам кажутся менее симпатичными, чем британцы? Я вопрос пока ставлю в целом. С Я тоже в целом. Те, кто за нас трения. или сохраняют нейтралитет, их больше. Но если их по головам посчитать чем представителей агрессивного, разумеется, максимально недружественного нам Запада. Но согласитесь, что ситуация, эта ситуация не является нормальной. А что касается Индии и Китая, о которых вы говорили, то их поддержка нашей страны ну, не является прямо уж такой безусловно. И опять-таки, опять-таки... Но мы же понимаем, что нам не оставили выхода. Еще раз задаю вам вопрос. Есть варианты подружиться с Лондоном? Есть, может быть, желание? После всего сделанного, сказанного и предпринятого? Нет. Но тем не менее, тем не менее, ситуацию вот эту нельзя признать нормальной складывающей. Когда против нас практически, ну, 40 коалиций из 42 стран, а наши возможности и военно-политическом, и военно-техническом плане, ну, все-таки ограничены. Это такую ситуацию, ну, нельзя признать нормальной. И из нее в любом случае нам надо выходить. Openly on this show, and it was very unusual because it's 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 virtually illegal uh, to even call it a war. I'm not sure if he called it a war or not, but that kind of critique was certainly out of character, which which the people I talk to say means that he mu he must represent sections of the Russian military. Um, Kargalitsky is saying that the Russian military. And much of the apparatchik and others want this war to end. And they all think, the, both militarily on the ground and in terms of sanctions, it's been a real disaster for Russia. And it's, you know, Putin and his people are keeping this thing going. I have no idea what's true or not true. Uh, maybe there's truth to all different sides. I don't know. All I know is, Tens of thousands of people continue to die. And that's the center of the thing. I, I am absolutely aghast at sections of the left who defend the Russian invasion as defending legitimate security concerns, as if the tens of thousands of people, and not just Ukrainians, but the Russian soldiers, the tens of thousands of working people that are getting killed in this, It's all lost in some BS about 
you know, what is it called? Multipolarity, a, a multipolar world, a, a bunch of geopolitical hokum. I am telling you, and I won't name any names, but I'm telling some of these people in this position, this is the position of a sociopath. You know, America, Russia, you know, these people are led by sociopaths. They have, they don't give a damn how many people are killed. But left-wingers aren't supposed to be sociopaths. And to talk about this war and, and simply dismiss the slaughter that's going on, that's, you're into such abstract dogmatism. Uh, maybe we should talk about this in another segment, like to justify all this because a multipolar world is better? That's insanity. But well, why don't we go on to another section then, and we'll end this one for here for now, and we'll come to that next, as well as what should we all be supporting and how do we support it? How do we articulate the right goals and the right paths forward? So we'll come back with Paul Jay in a third section.